Well, hello, my friend. How are you? <laughs> is this the real Ken Wilbur? Is this the real Nathaniel? I didn't recognize his literary style lately with these okie-dokie references. <laughs> I, oh. wondered whether, I wondered whether or not he'd been kidnapped by some Far Eastern sect, and they had put an imposter in his place with not much ability to capture his literary style. <laughs> Where is our Ken Wilbur, and what have you done with him? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm pushing the far edges of Alzheimer's. I'm exploring new dimensions in dumbness. I, you know, what can I say? Listen, if anybody does not suffer from Alzheimer's, it's you. If anybody does suffer from Alzheimer's in this conversation, it's me. <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. I, I, I think you and Mike Murphy are going to just keep going. I don't, I don't see any signs of you two. I think both of you have a portrait in the attic someplace. It just looks like hell. But you guys just seem to keep plugging. Well, uh, how old is Mike? Well, he's, you know, you guys are neck to neck. Uh, he, you know, he's getting up there. I don't want to, you know, embarrass the man. But, you know, I, I, some, some people just seem to keep getting better. I don't know what it is. It's really interesting, actually. Well, it must be all of that um, clean living and clear thinking that you're well known for. It has something to do with that, I'm sure, <laughs> and uh, and a lot to do with being fascinated by the work. Well, let's just let's do that because you're, oh God, I mean, your adult professional life has just been, and is the stuff of uh, stories and movies. Um, going back, you were what were you? You were in your teens when you met Anne, weren't you? I met Ayn Rand one month before I turned twenty. God, March 1950. We have, you know, I, I, as, I, as I've told you, I, I mean, you and I have, you know, we go back long ways. I just, I think the world of you, I'm, it's been really glad to have you in my life. And we've always, I think, really kind of sort of turned each other on, essentially fired each other up. And, and, and we've always enjoyed each other's company. And I, you know, I tend to, th I look back over your life and your trajectory, though, and it's just astonishing. Um, we were going to talk a little bit about it, I and mean, we, we need no particular order of this necessarily, but I'd mentioned to you that I was thinking of your adult life anyway, your professional life anyway, as sort of up to the day, kind of in three parts, and one... Yes, wait a minute, we'll, wait a minute, Ken, I don't want to be here under false pretenses. My adult life doesn't begin for another month. <laughs> yeah, but we're talking yeah, chronologically, not emotional age yet, yeah, I understand. Um, well, you know, and, and there's almost kind of 20-year chunks. I mean, you, your professional life and your career, your career in writing, psychology, and philosophy just happen to coincide with bumping into a woman who is, you know, a, a towering figure. And well, the story, yes. Yeah, well, I was going to say, this, it's roughly about 20 years there until you're, you're um, parting with, with Ian in 68. And then another, about the same kind of chunk, I tend to think that up into the mid-80s or so, where I think the period when you broke up with Anne up to around the 80s, mid-80s, 90s, is, is sort of when you were solidifying your, your own philosophy and particularly the psychology of self-esteem, which you pioneered and continuing to, to formulate your own philosophy, obviously influenced by Ian, but really stating your own sort of case, so to speak. And then some, sometime in the mid-80s, plus or minus a decade, your interest started to kind of expand into, I think, areas that certainly would go outside of, of some of the normal ones, including spirituality and transpersonal psychology. And, and, That's and all areas. correct. And, you know, kind of up to today and on to tomorrow. So 
And, and I must say, I mean, you're quite right, and, and that process is very definitely continuing very, very actively in my present life. And right. maybe that's a better answer than I gave you before about why the passion is still there. Yeah, well, and I think passion's a good, uh, I think passion is a really good phrase to define, you know, your interest in this field anyway. And occasionally I've had people um, refer to, you know, my own interest in this field as passionate as well. And I happen to think that's one of the really great adjectives and one of the really great defining terms for it. So passion is certainly what you had when you were 19. Well, actually, to really give the listener the context, I have to go back to when I was 14. Yeah. And I'm living in Toronto, and I'm hearing my sister, seven years older than me, reading something from a book, and two other girls are listening mesmerized. Wow. And, after, and I'm sort of sitting in the a chair a few feet away with the teenage condescension, you know, that's only likely to be there when you're 14. <laughs> but after the girls left, they left this book on the coffee table, and I picked it up, The Fountainhead, by Ayn Rand. Yeah. And I began to read, and I disappeared from this earth for the next two days or three days until the book was finished. Right. And it was an electrifying, electrifying experience for me. It really made the most profound impact on all of my later development. Right. Uh, but the interesting thing was my mother became alarmed at, at the fact that I was neglecting schoolwork. And this, I was more <laughs> interested in discussing philosophy than learning, you know, school stuff. And uh, there was this lady who my mother regarded as a kind of a professional intellectual, and uh, she wanted me to explain to this lady what this book was about so that mother would know whether or not to worry. <laughs> 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 so I, I read her the famous Rourke's courtroom speech, yeah. and the woman very pleasantly said, well, th this is not a new philosophy, this is anarchism. Now, I didn't know what anarchism was, yeah. but I felt intuitively certain that she was mistaken. Yeah. And indeed she was. But anyway, the next day I played hooky from school, and I went down to one branch of the Toronto Public Library, and I asked the librarian to help me find books on, on uh, anarchism. Yeah. And the first book she gave me was a book by Bertrand Russell called Proposed Roads to Freedom, Socialism, Syndicalism, and Anarchism. Oh, God. <laughs> And that was how I discovered professional philosophy, yeah. political philosophy in particular. Yeah. And uh, that took a hold of me. And during the next six or seven years of my life, I was reading constantly in, in psychology, in philosophy, and also in literature, because right. I also had a passion for theater and the drama. But I really used, I used to tell Ayn Rand that she kind of brought me up long distance during my adolescent years, where right. I was right. quite a lonely, quite an alienated kid. And uh, that was my alternative universe. But you were, in that sense, sort of self-educated in a lot of those fields. I was self-educated. Uh, well, so was I, had, I so. I had, I had one, I don't know whether you can relate to this or not, but I had one... I made one mistake, which you did not make, so far as I can tell. Not yet. When I was young, <laughs> when I was young, I had the feeling at times that the whole world was in a conspiracy to get me to see things their way rather than the way 
they seemed to me, and that to protect my consciousness became a primary priority of mine, to listen very, very critically to anything that anybody said, and really confirm it or disconfirm it in terms of my own understanding. Now, that has an awful lot to recommend it in terms of autonomy, in terms of the obvious, but it has one serious thing against it. You lose a lot of time rediscovering or reinventing the wheel. Right. <laughs> you know? Yep. And so that cost me a lot. It gave me a lot, but it cost me a lot. Yeah. Now, wasn't it, it struck me, wasn't um, when you and Barbara were studying with Ian, did, wasn't there almost a, a conscious choice for you to go to college and get a certain kind of degree just because you needed a club card? Yes, emphatically, yes. I, I really, I thought, well, I'll get a degree in psychology, I'll, I'll practice psychotherapy, or I'll teach, or I'll do something, I'll earn my living, but my real life won't be any of that. My real life will be writing. I knew then that there was two things I wanted to do in life. One was to write books in the fields of psychology or philosophy, and the right. other was to write novels. Right. And uh, for a variety of reasons, which we'll get to later, I suppose, in this conversation, for a long time, philosophy and psychology won out and trumped fiction writing. And only in the last few years, and that's a story in itself for later, everything stopped. And I realized if I only had one book left to write in this world, and I hope I'll have more than one book, it was going to be fiction. All but right. Ser- serious fiction. Serious. I got it. Okay. Well, we, we, that's absolutely something I want to talk about. When did you wake up and say, that's it, I'm going to find her. I'm going to go find Ayn Rand. I'm, I'm getting well, in a car. I'm, here I go. But that's not quite how it happened. How it happened was, I, I you know, you must, remember, you must remember this period of history, 1950, every enlightened intellectual knew that socialism was a wave of the future, that capitalism was on its last legs, and how could any person of 20 even find out what capitalism was in that environment? Understood. Especially within that environment, coming from a somewhat left-wing world in terms of family, relatives, and so forth. Right. Um, but anyway, so... I wrote Ayn Rand a letter asking her a number of philosophical questions about the Fountainhead and about her first novel, We the Living. Right. And they were really challenging questions because there were things I didn't understand, political, economic, moral. And uh, she was busy writing Atlas Shrugged, and she was not at this time answering fan mail, which she got in enormous quantities because right. she was totally obsessed with the book she was writing. But she showed my letter to her husband, Frank. Right. He was impressed, and he said, you know, I answer this man. He's asking very serious, very legitimate questions, and he deserves an answer. So she wrote me quite an extraordinary long, long letter, point by point answering the various things that I had said. And I was deeply touched and excited that she would give me that much time. And she ended the letter, and she said... uh, if you're still serious, you want to pursue ideas, and it's not just that you want to talk with a famous person, give me your phone number, and perhaps I could find the time we could meet, that we could pursue our philosophical conversation. Right. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven, Ken. <laughs> so the next thing that happened, during this period, I moved from one apartment to another. and I, I got a speeding ticket driving when I when the woman phoned me that there's a letter here, and the letterhead was from Ayn Rand. Anyway, <laughs> so I then wrote her back, and I said, yes, I would be desperately like to meet you and talk, and uh, here's my phone number. Two or three weeks later, I'm sound asleep. For some reason, I was asleep around 9.30 at night. Don't ask me why. 
the phone rings, and I say hello in this thick Russian accent, ask for me, <laughs> and the sign ran. Yeah. And she invited me to come to her home in, in, in San Fernando Valley yeah. on a Saturday night a few days later. And I arrived at 8 o'clock in the evening, and I stayed talking philosophy till 5.30 in the morning. And the thought going through me was, for the first time in my life, I felt, I am at home. Yeah. I am at home. And you're not even out of your teens. Well, as I said, it's a month before I turned 20. Yeah. But, you know, it was as though all my life, in my short life, but then... <laughs> I, I didn't know anybody who really had a passion for ideas. Yeah. And quite aside from issues of content, uh, there was this great sense of the passionate importance of ideas yeah. that spoke to my heart, my soul, my mind, to every part of me that I know about, and also the parts I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I guess part of the question in when I said, when did you wake up and decide that you were going to go see her, um, it, it was sort of a general one, too. Obviously, when she contacted you, that part of the decision was made, in a sense, by her. But often when people write an author or write to somebody that they you know, appreciate, it's sort of a test case. It's, they haven't really made up their mind what they would do if the person really contacted them. Did you sort of know from the, did you sort of intuit from the beginning that you just really were meant to sort of be with her, that she called up and said, let's get together? There was just no hesitation in your mind that you would do that? When do you think that, did that maybe happen even you know, three pages into the first book when you were reading? Um, I, it, never, it never occurred to me until I read the sentence, if you are a man seriously interested in ideas and not just looking to have a conversation with a celebrity, etc. There you go. I, that sentence, in that moment, it felt like fate. That's, that's, it, it, that's, in that there moment, you go. Not, not earlier. I get it, yeah. And, you know, what Ian used to say to me and kid me later on in life, she said, one of the things that impressed me was that you were totally not afraid of me. She's, she was a very powerful woman. It was very easy to get afraid of her. Yeah. I felt totally at home. I felt safe. I felt, I understand this world. Yeah. And so it was, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, she did she, I mean, I've read your account, you've talked about the account, there's popularized accounts of, of it, the movie versions of it when, when you first... The movie version is total nonsense. I know. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with, not one of us would have said the dialogue that we were given in that stupid movie. What, let's what, not talk about that. <laughs> when you first saw her, what were the first words out of her mouth to you? Uh, something like, how do you do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shaking hands. Something. You know, like that, we sat down. Yeah. And then she began to ask me how I happened to read The Fountainhead. Yeah. And what about The Fountainhead interested me or impressed me enough to pursue it here, etc. And um, got a little bit of my history. What, what was I studying in college? What were my goals or ambitions in life? Yeah. And then she said, I have three questions I want to ask you. I said, okay. And she said, the first question is, what do you think about reason? Hmm. So I didn't understand the question. <laughs> um, I forget how she, she rephrased it, but she was really asking me, I guess, was I a mystic or was I religious? Right. Or did I believe that there were paths to 
knowledge other than rational. Right, right. And and I said, and I said, I can't even conceive of that. I said, I, I said, took me aback. I said because um, it's kind of uh, seemed to me obvious that any thinking person would have the highest respect for reason and the rational process and uh, have skepticism about anything else. Yeah. The second question, she said, I want to know, what do I think of man? Huh. In the generic sense. Sure. Good women, obviously. Human and organism. And again, it took me a moment or two to understand what she meant, but she was really t- testing me out whether or not I had any version of original sin in my makeup. Exactly. Do, do I see man as sort of intrinsically good right. or intrinsically bad? Right. And I said, I'm not sure that I intrinsically would see him intrinsically either. Yeah. I said, I see him as intrinsically having the potential of both. Mm-hmm. But whether or not any individual will actualize more of one than the other is a separate question. Well, she seemed to like that answer. So you passed the first two questions. And the third question was very interesting, too. What do you think? I think it was this. I hope I remembered. I know I have it right in my memoir, but I'm, that was written a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope my memory is correct. I think the first question was either what do you think of the universe or what do you think of life? And what she wanted to know was whether my basic risk feeling about life and existence was affirmative and optimistic or tragic or malevolent. Right. And, of course, the answer was the first of the two. I had a very benevolent, positive sense of the joy of being and the joy of the universe, and I didn't have the feeling that it's in the nature of the existence that the cards are stacked hopelessly against we humans. Right. But rather that right. if we can find the right way to live, the universe is 100% for us. Yeah. I hope I'm not being over-detailed in my Good response. Lord, no, no, we're just going to, no, this is, no, God, come on. Um, so when did you meet Barbara? This is a material of drama. I met Barbara about 18 months earlier. Between high school and college, I worked for a year in, in an uncle's jewelry store to make some money in Winnipeg, where I met Barbara. A friend introduced us because she had this great passion for the Fountainhead, too. Right. So my friend thought we two should meet. And Barbara was also, what, she was maybe 18? Yeah, she yeah. was a year older than me. She was 19. Yeah. And she she came to UCLA, where that's where I came to from and she was majoring in philosophy. Right. And uh, I brought her with me on my second visit to Rand, and we very quickly became a four-way family. Uh, yeah, exactly. So now you're settling down. You're starting, obviously, to um, work in the circles with Ian and Frank and Barbara. Very soon, now she, well, let me preface this by asking, when you met her, how long had she been working on... Let me see. I'm about, uh, let me think about it. Around roughly five or six years. But And she spent another many years working on it while yeah. you were, yeah. But remember this, Atlas Shrugged is a length of four novels. I uh, understood. Um, but part of the drama was, as the circle's growing, obviously her influence is growing, you had a huge hand in this by basically creating a lecture organization um, that could disseminate these ideas along with your own and yeah. was really responsible for getting the word out um, more well, than that, anybody else. that's true. How that came about very briefly was that in the interval, we all moved back to New York, and uh, I began to create, in effect, a circle of people who were admirers of the Fountainhead 
and we used to meet at Iron Rands every Saturday night. The most famous member was Alan Greenspan. Right. And uh, we were ended up, all of them, reading out the shrug as it was being written. And so Which must have been unbelievably, just ecstatically um, thrilling. I mean, uh, Ken, there, there, are, there are truly no words. It totally ruined me for a normal social existence. I would I mean, imagine. Even in spite of everything tragic that happened later, which, of course, you know, yeah. uh, th- there was an atmosphere of such intellectual passion and intensity. I've talked to several people, one of my sisters, I talked to Alan Greenspan, who has met you know, some of the most famous, brilliant people right. in the world, and I said, did that time ruin you for most human relationships? He smiled and said, yes. Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. It, I mean, and I don't think you, you know, um, anything like that could... Um, I, it's just so rare. It's hard to imagine what that must have been like. It must have been the equivalent of philosophical cocaine. Yes. Uh, not that I've ever tried cocaine, but just an intense rush that you're not going to get anyplace else in life, and, and certainly not in philosophical life. Yes, what, one of the, yes. Anyway, but just to gallop ahead, Ian received a tremendous amount of fan mail for the, for the Fountainhead years after it was written. Yeah. And, and the publisher said they had never seen anything like this for a novelist to this, get this kind of very serious, often very intellectual fan mail. Right. So one night I was thinking about the fact, Jesus, when Atlas Shrugged is published, that's going to ignite an interest in her philosophy far beyond what the Fountainhead would right. do. Wouldn't it be interesting, and there's going to be some desire for a more formal, structured, somewhat more academic way of setting up and explaining what her philosophy was and what its grounds were. And uh, I proposed this idea to Ian that I would create a lecture course. Right. And she was very, very skeptical. She didn't think there would be a market for it because I had no university affiliation. Right. And how would you sell it or even explain? But anyway, the book came out, and there was this great interest. So if anybody lived with any fan mail letter, lived within commuting distance in New York, I wrote them a letter inviting them to take this course. Exactly. And so the first time the course was given, we had 28 students. It was given again uh, six months later. We had 45 students. Then I had the idea of running ads for the event in the New York Times, and that's what launched us. Yeah. And then we had up to maybe 150 students. Yeah. At a, at a, now, I used to give the course twice a year. Now, didn't, didn't with Ian's uh, encouragement even, didn't you back then were even calling it the Nathaniel Brandon uh, Institute? Well, we called it, the, that's a funny story. See, I, while, while I had Ian's complete intellectual support, the project was mine, and I didn't want, in case anything wrong happened, for it to reflect on her, and, yeah. and she didn't want that. So therefore, we didn't want her name. Right. So the lawyer said that to me, well, we have to call this organization something. What will we call it? <laughs> so I said, with you know, the marvelous, marvelous ignorance and naivety of youth, I said, I was 28 at the time, just yeah. turned. I said, uh, well, I guess we'll call it the Nathaniel Brandon Institute. <laughs> 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 it really strikes me as so hysterical in retrospect. But, you know, he, the lawyer kind of looked at me a little quizzically. He says, okay. <laughs> started out being called before it was incorporated Nathaniel Brandon Lectures, and then a yep. year or two later we changed it to Nathaniel Brandon Institute. And that was really just to, to leave a gap between Brandon and me in case anything went haywire. Well, as I say, nowadays she would have plausible deniability. <laughs> <laughs> she, she would come to the question periods, yeah. which was a tremendous draw. Yeah. 
and then she began having cards inserted in the paperback editions of, of her books. If you want to learn more about this philosophy, etc., etc., and so forth. So when ten years later everything exploded and I cold, closed the institute, we had uh, people taking the course in eighty cities around the world. Yeah, all by a tape transcription. Just astonishing. And see, you know, one of the things it's so uh, when a force like iron kind of comes under the scene. Obviously, uh, this is stuff of you know books are written about. I mean, it was history was being made in many ways, and obviously you can analyze and we can talk about it. And we have talked about it. You can analyze this from a hundred different ways and and see the importance that she had, the role that you were playing in this uh, was crucial to that uh, influence. Uh, the role you had in her, even her writing of uh, Atlas Shrugged, was crucial. Uh, the relationship you had was crucial to the unfolding. I mean, again, you can go at this from a hundred different directions, but in certainly. Uh, uh, large part of it was just the force of Ion's personality. I mean, she's, she's an incredibly charismatic, powerful, strong, clear, brilliant, passionate woman. Yeah. May, and, may I be allowed to just say a few things about which ideas meant most to me? Of course. At, at this point, at even earlier as a teenager? Sure. Because, because the reason for asking that, having talked to so many admirers of her books, it's almost like different books that different people read because of what they brought sure. to it. So I'm picking on what I selected as most important to me. Right. One thing supremely important was the sense of work or a calling as a sacred mission. Yeah. A sense of reverence for creative work and a sense of mission about one's work. Right. A second thing that I would name very important of course, the importance of independence and autonomy. Yeah. A third thing that I would mention that indelibly impressed itself down to my molecules was the supreme importance of admiration in romantic love. The yeah. supreme importance of mutual admiration in romantic love. Yeah. Individualism, obviously. Right. A minimalist view of the state, yep. obviously. But at the more personal level, I would name the reverence for work. I would name individualism. I would name autonomy. I would name the importance of admiration in the context of love. Right, right. Well, given all of that, you, how long did it take for you to fall in love with her? Well, <laughs> uh, I was tempted to say something, and I thought, well, maybe I won't say it. What I was going to say to you, well, as one egomaniac to another. <laughs> you admirate? Well, she had to have a... If anybody had a bigger ego than you, it was her. Uh, wait a minute. I was talking about you and me, not Rand and me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we both know, <laughs> yeah. ego is another word for Atman. And the bigger the <laughs> ego... Right. The only, the, no, the problem with ego... You know, the problem is, is ego's not big enough. When it's big enough, it's God. It's stopping halfway short that gets people in trouble. So I think egomaniacs are headed in the right direction. Um, <laughs> well, I, I was meaning only to be humorous. I know, I know. And to I acknowledge know. the fact that uh, there's something uh, healthy and wonderful, I think, about ego... But even in its different stages of development, there are sometimes pathological sides, but Absolutely. there are also very positive sides. Absolutely.
and I know you would agree. Anyway, back to the ranch. Yeah, you've got admiration was, for her. You've got, you know, all of these ideas are lined up. Um, your work is going to align with hers in a way that's almost, you know, destiny in terms of calling or mission. And you had a great deal of admiration for her, obviously. So they, well, sort of the pump was, was primed, wasn't it? My marriage to Barbara was a mistake. Yeah. And I knew it. And Rand was not very happy in her own marriage. She had an interesting relationship with Frank. Yes, he was own. really a lovely man, but quite passive. Yeah. Not not intellectual. Yeah. Very supportive of her, but it was common, commonly acknowledged that I was able to give I in certain things intellectually, which Frank could not. Right. And it was, at times, somewhat awkward and embarrassing for me because... Ian could pay me incredible compliments in his presence that made me feel very squirmy. Yeah. And that I felt did not show one of the rare times even then that I was critical of feeling this does not show good judgment. But anyway, yeah. what happened was that we went from being close friends, everything getting closer and closer and having these long conversations and, and really feeling like soulmates, to use a cliche. Yeah. And... Uh, I noticed that, you know, like when I would arrive or when I would leave, the hugs, hello or goodbye, were getting a little bit longer. And the little physical contact was just getting a little bit more. You're 23, 24? 23, 24. Yeah. I didn't have any idea in my inexperience where the hell this was headed. Yeah. And to the best of my knowledge, she didn't either at that point. Right. Uh, she, anyway, so, um, but the situation was heating up. And uh, she came to an event in Toronto where I'd come from, and we drove back, Ian and Frank, my sister of mine, and Barbara and me in the car. And in the car, Ian began doing one of her soliloquies about Nathaniel and about uh, how important he was in her life, and et cetera, and so forth. And then Nathaniel starts doing a soliloquy about how important Ian is in his life. Wow. And then Ian starts doing a soliloquy about she doesn't know what to call this. It isn't. It's more than friendship. It's family, but it's more than family. Yeah. And she lists a lot of possibilities, and then she suddenly stops and just looks at me, and I stop and just look at her, and made my first fatal mistake. <laughs> I smiled uh-uh. very confidently, uh-uh. as if I knew exactly what the hell I was doing. Oh God. I mean, that was definitely ego in the unwise sense. Well, yeah, well, Cal Surprise. Anyway, so now we're back in New York, and I phones and says, I need to talk, but you can want to come over. So, went over there, and let me say that had this not happened, it never would have occurred to me to take it any further than in that car ride, and then life would continue as usual. Uh, but I wanted to know what what happened in the car, and what, right. you know, one word led to another, and before the conversation was over, we were declaring our love for each other. Wow. And uh, uh, only in retrospect can I realize to what extent she was leading the exchange. I didn't see it as clearly then as I did years later when I could look back, when I could look back from the perspective of what was my age. Right at the time when she was doing such and such, and knowing that I would not make the moves that she made right. to a person 25 years my junior. Right. Anyway. Um, and that started it. And that started it. Except the, the, the 
the unusual thing, I guess, is that passionate believers in honesty and integrity, we have formed our spouses immediately. Right. And invited or requested their permission for us to have a relationship. Right. Which, in a tortured manner of speaking, was granted because Frank felt guilty that for the, all the things he couldn't give Ian that he recognized or believed that I could. And Barbara, similarly, for all the things she felt she couldn't give me, but Ian could, and felt like only the accident of age, that this really was the right woman for Nathaniel, this was really the right uh, a man for Ian, except uh, they were born in the wrong time frame. Right. With her being 25 years senior, etc. Right. And this lasted, so for about three years, we'd spend an evening and an afternoon a week together. Yep. Unfortunately, I realized not long afterwards that I had made a terrible mistake, that I had confused uh, passionate admiration with romantic love. If there was another element involved, I would say it would have been like me at that stage of my development, and maybe at other stages as well, that when I would, the feelings of love would become that intense, I think it would be felt natural for me to sexualize them. Right. And I don't think that's probably that unusual. Yeah. Um, but I realized I'd made a mistake and I would have given anything not to have started down this road. Yeah. But now I was in it, and uh, I was hearing intoxicating communications about my role and importance. And so here was the the seductiveness of the whole situation. That must have been just imp um, a road almost impossible to get off of, Nathaniel. I mean, here's somebody that you admire, you know, above virtually anybody she's admired by you know thousands tens of thousands of people she's this charismatic force um, you're part of a philosophical movement it's extremely rare in any age that you're part of the founding of a philosophical movement the giddiness the excitement the enthusiasm all of which is appropriate but then you're also you're romantically involved with her and you're a kid I mean that you know what kind of judgment can you have in some of those early years so you're obviously even even more inflated than than you might might be normally and then it also fits in a bizarre wacky way with objectivist philosophy because Ion as you know is sort of the ultimate cognitive therapist that if you're if you're really being rational then all of your feelings will follow your rationality exactly and therefore if you are rationally appreciating Ion Rand then the rational thing to do is to be in love with her and if you're not passionately in love with her you're not thinking rationally so, Absolutely correct, Alas. Absolutely correct. It was. It was really. Uh, I'm not trying to alibi or you know or get it, but um, it was. Uh, it was. It was intoxicating, and also, uh, also what was important was the fact that I could hardly believe that this person who I had regarded as. Um, a goddess since the age of 14, yeah. saw me for all practical purposes as the apotheosis of everything she was writing about. Well, and made it very clear that you were the perfect representation of her philosophy, that you were the epitome of it, and that it's no secret that, you know, you had an enormous influence on um, Atlas Shrugged and, and, and the hero on that and so on. And Atlas Shrugged 
I don't have to tell you, is consistently rated as the second most influential book uh, uh, on people's lives after the Bible. That's Library right. of Congress Guess explained that out. Guess what number five is? What? Guess what number five Fountainhead. is? The Fountainhead. The Fountainhead. So, 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 yeah, but yeah. you were Atlas. I mean, it's, it's, it's outrageous the kinds of forces that were, that were being, you know, you were being subjected well, to. Well, thank, thank you for your understanding because sometimes I myself lose perspective and get very critical of myself of that time. Well, in and a sense, um, obviously, uh, there are an enormous number of factors here, but I really, looking back on it, the number of forces stacked against you were rather awesome, it seems to me. And also, given, um, in a certain sense, you know, you were philosophically battered spouse. Um, because No, no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I, I know what you mean, and I think it's a very astute comment. Yeah. So this was this took you. I mean, it looks to me that there were probably you know, it would take about four or five crowbars to get you out of that situation. Yes, I want to mention one other thing yeah, that is psychologically do. interesting. Yeah, Ian had an extraordinary gift for seeing whatever was most almost secretively good. What was? Let me omit the word secretively. She had a, a real feeling of seeing something very good, very valuable in the human being that the human being might not be aware of himself or herself. She knew how to bring that out. Uh, that's and great, the significance though. of that was that it was an enormous gift to their self-esteem. But that was the good news. The bad news was that when the boost comes in that form, the danger is that there is a hook to the person who provided this enlightenment. Yeah. So that to, to retain her goodwill or her admiration becomes very important. Yeah. Uh, I tell you, now let's say we're talking post-Atlas Shrug, I mean the years of that time, I saw quite a number of people, some of them quite famous from different professions, uh, come over to her apartment, sometimes uh, not necessarily fans, but wanted to meet, you know, to talk, and some of them... Uh, came in like lions and went out like lambs. I mean, you cannot, you cannot imagine. This was another aspect of the intellectual excitement that, that seduced me, or that I don't want to say induced me and say intoxicated me, was that she had a gift. You could come in, let's say you're a chemist. She knows, let us say, nothing about chemistry. You begin to talk. She'll ask you some questions about your profession. I promise you, you'll go home feeling better understood yeah. by her as a chemist than anybody you've ever talked to in your whole life. I bet that's true. And I tell you, it was so thrilling to watch. Yeah. And, um... The well, yeah, yes, we, well, I was saying there was... That, that you were in such a tight box, there were so many reinforcers, so to speak, both positive and negative, to keep you in that situation. And again, some of it was wonderful. I mean, this is the, the difficult side and the stuff that it took for you to break out of it, of course, is, you know, well, difficult indeed. But the positives are also extraordinarily positive. I mean, as you say, the intoxication, the excitement, the enthusiasm, and also to be on the very, very positive side. The, the, one can criticize the Ion's philosophy of objectivism and so on all you want. But the fact of the matter is there's some very valuable, if partial, truths in it. And these truths have indeed helped an enormous number of people find their That's own individuality, true. find a certain autonomy from groupthink and the herd mentality. I think it's no accident whatsoever 
that Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead are in the top five books that have changed people's lives. And for you to be a part of the actual construction and creation of Atlas Shrugged, I mean, in a sense, you were, you were, the, you were part of the... Oh, no, she was, she was well into the book by the time she met me. You mustn't give me credit right, don't... Well, she, I know, I understood, but she gave you credit in terms of being the epitome and the, the perfect manifestation of what she was talking about. So that's, you know, that was her giving you credit. And all of that is a very, you know, that's an extraordinarily giddy thing to be writing. But, but even without the, the intoxicating excitement, the positive things that came out of that whole movement, I think, are positive indeed. And again, they can, you know, they have their limitations, and we can talk about them as partial truths and so on. But that's something that I don't think anybody should take away from any of the people that were involved in, in that movement and its beginnings and its dissemination. I think it's a terrific thing. But then when you get back down on the personal side, then, you know, things are getting pretty tough. And if you look at the, like I say, the emotional side of it, you were hemmed in by, by several forces. And only one of them was, you know, your own egoic stuff. There was positive stuff. There was ions. Basically, it was very, very important, I think, um, to her well-being that you and she were in relationship. Yeah. And that she saw you as in love with her. It sort of fortified uh, all of her notions about rationality and feelings and objectivism. Um, show me your romantic love object, I'm sure she would say, and you, I can show you the person's premises. So, obviously, if you're thinking rationally and clearly, you're going to be in love with Ayn Rand. And for, for you to break out of that particular box took, like I said, must have taken four or five crowbars. Well, um, it, it was really, really hard because, uh, on top of which, all my internal conflicts couldn't be entirely concealed, yeah. and that meant that I was, I was being balled out a great deal, in the uh, because I was emotionally remote, detached, right. non-empathic, uh, yeah. preoccupied, the disappeared, the absent-minded professor, you know. Uh, well, now she's in her fifties too. Well, she was yes. By, by this time. Y yes. Yeah. And I was in my 30s. Right. And she was approaching 60. And, uh, but that wasn't the issue. The issue was that I realized that um, I didn't want to be answerable for every breath I took. And it was just... <laughs> it, it That's was just, one of the most um, condemning indictments of the philosophy right there. Well, I hope we'll get to that later. Yeah, sure. I'd like a chance to explain <laughs> what I mean. Yeah. Uh, not treated as self-evident. Um, it was like, the interesting thing is she was not wrong in one respect. She sensed that something was wrong that I was not putting out on the table. Yeah. She was not hallucinating. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. Uh, and so to, I would defend her to this extent. It isn't like she was grabbing this stuff off the wall. Her perceptions were correct. Well, they usually were. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you say she's that, a that, damn perceptive. That's the maddening part. Yeah. In any event, uh, she was in the, the relationship, the romance, so to speak, came to an end not long after Atlas was published, not because of a fight, but simply because she had went into a quite deep depression, and it, her mind wasn't there, and we, we became friends again. And then when I was before, now, after she no, well that's she didn't. That's before she found out about Patricia. That, yeah, that happened later. But yeah, uh, uh, but I'm talking about in the late '60s. Right. Pardon me, in, in the yeah, in the earlier '60s. And um, 
Well, I didn't mean to interrupt there. She had gone into a depression. What, what happened there, Nathaniel? She had tried to prepare her publishers that the attacks on her were going to be like nothing they could imagine. Yeah. And everybody was so enthusiastic about the book, they'd never believed her. She, she knew, but she also hoped or expected there would be some serious intellectual minds speaking up in her defense. There really weren't, were there? No. Strangely enough, that's a whole separate story. Yeah, I know, but it's, it's one that's perplexed you and her followers no end. Maybe we can come back to it, but go ahead. Anyway, there was... Yeah, there. It's, it's, yeah it's, it's a very interesting phenomenon, and for me, it was, it, was, it was like a trauma. Yeah. Because we, I would be in an event where I, I would be, let us say, lecturing or doing something, or Ryan would be there. And then I would read, maybe a few weeks later in Newsweek or someplace, a, a, a report of what had taken place at that event, which bore no relationship to what had taken place at that event. And uh, this, today we're more cynical, we're wiser about the press, but this is going back 30 years, 40 years. Right. And uh, I, I couldn't believe some of the stuff that would be alleged about her or about me or yep. about the book or about what ideas we were advocating. Yeah, usually pretty much the opposite of what she meant. It was, it was, uh, here was the most consistent and passionate spokesperson for individual rights I have any personal knowledge of on this planet. Right. I don't know anybody right. who was more consistent in the politically consistent perspective that she had on individual sovereignty and the very limited role for the state, as you right. of course know. Anyway, I remember. So she was getting savage in the New York Times of what they were calling, you know, good literature. And I, I used to. I was always interested in what people thought was good. If this is what they thought was bad, <laughs> and, and uh, I was kind of appalled by the dreck, by my standards. And I, I remember, I gave myself the assignment: each Sunday, I must read the entire book review section of the New York Times until I can do so in a state of complete indifferent equanimity, and I'll stop. <laughs> Desensitization at its finest. Well, there you have it. You understand? It's just my way of trying to communicate to you. It was really a very hard period, kidding aside. It was and very hard. she was going through that. Even though she knew it was going to happen, the slings and arrows of that kind of outrageous fortune are hard to bear. And you see, and you see, you see. I had one relief. I had something I could do about it. I had NBI and, and the lecture course, etc., which kept attracting more and more people. And uh, and the books were selling fabulously. The, the sales of the books are incredible to this day. I know. I the know. Fountain had published in 1943, still sells in excess of 100,000 copies a year. Atlas published in '57, sells in excess of 100,000 a year. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so she the situation was, was deteriorating both maritally right. and uh, with iron. I'm obviously leaving out a great deal because otherwise this would be a 12-hour marathon, and we'd only cover the relationship. Well, anyway. we're gonna we'll have we'll have three conversations covering the three three different periods. We can just ramble about this one as long as you want. I, I'm yours to command. There we. <laughs>